Today's show is brought to you by Bogart Extractors, an industry leader in hydrocarbon extraction. Over the last decade, Bogart has implemented many new technologies, which have helped to revolutionize the way hydrocarbon extractions are performed. Each unit is made with sanitary stainless steel and is built and tested right here in the USA. Their certified system for use in licensed facility meet all NFPA and ASME standards and undergo peer-reviewed by third-party engineers to ensure facilities and its employees can operate safely. Beyond simply making a functional extractor, Bogart has many additional features which make extraction faster and more cost-effective compared to other manufacturers. These features include hydrocarbon failing films to supercharge evaporation rates, heavy-duty explosion-proof pumps for flammable liquids and vapors, industrial chillers capable of maintaining large tanks of solvent at temperatures below 60 Celsius. They also offer extensive tech support and consultation services. So whether you need to set up an extraction lab from scratch or you just need some replacement gaskets, Give them a call at 855-553-3887 or check out their website at www.bogart.com. All right, welcome to the Deep Dive. I am Mark Rostelli, CEO of CanTrade and The Hemp Show. Here with me today, I've got one of our team members, Franco Smith. I also have Maureen West and Dan Herrer. Did I say that right? Did I mess it up? Yes. I did. Wait, hold on. Herrer. Herrer. There it is. Yes, <laughs> I got I got it right. Sorry, I was trying to... I, I mean, um, obviously with a, with a name, with the last name and uh, Jack Herrer going around having known that strain for so long um i've heard it said a thousand times and now i have that muscle memory in my mouth um and i'm just saying it wrong so to to kick things off i had to get schooled on how to actually say it by by dan here and i still butchered it <laughs> oh right. man so so let's let's just dive into everything if you don't mind to kind of kick things off i mean i know i just gave you a, just an introduction with your names i'd love to hear um you know tell the audience everybody that's listening uh, in your own words, who you are, what you've what you've been doing in the space, um, and then we can kind of go from there. Whoever would like to start, Dan, Dan or Marine? You, you want me to go first? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're you're the more interesting one, so we'll save the best for last. So. Um, oh, you're interesting too, Marine. Come on, don't, <laughs> don't sell yourself short. I'm interesting, but not compared to Dan. <laughs> Anyway, um, well, I, um, I'm an attorney and uh, just really in a nutshell, I was an assistant attorney general for about 20 years for the state of Colorado, represented a lot of health regulatory boards and uh, different kinds of regulation regulatory boards and um, heard about this hemp thing. And it caught my attention, mostly from a legal point of view, um, because it was illegal at the federal level, uh, yet legal in the state of Colorado. So for legal reasons, I decided to learn about it. And um, the way I did that was I became the industrial hemp program manager for the Colorado Department of Agriculture. And I got to meet many people in the industry, um, ranchers, farmers, um, all kinds of people in the industry, and just really jumped on the hemp train and realized that this was this golden plant that um, that was so misunderstood and that people were so fearful about. And that's 
kind of what Dan and I like to talk about is fear over facts or facts over fear, <laughs> facts over fear, um, because the people's perceptions and misunderstandings are so great. And it's really kept um, this wonderful plant and it's um, what it can do for people. Um, they, they haven't had the chance to have the opportunity to use it as much as we'd like to see. So that's it in a nutshell. Let's run. To, let's jump to Dan. All right. So uh, I'm Dan Herrer. Uh, my father was uh, one of the old-time uh, activists and uh, uh, historians of, of cannabis and hemp. And uh, in the early 70s, he wrote his first book on cannabis called Grass. And then uh, about 12 years later, uh, after his continued education into uh, cannabis and hemp, he wrote a history book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes which was, uh, at the time, it was everything you should have learned in school but weren't taught, uh, the, you know, the history of cannabis, uh, the emperor wears no clothes. What it did is it, it went through, uh, went back through history, uh, every, you know, uh, through books and documents and, and manuscripts and things like that um, prior to the 1930s. Uh, and, and he started really digging up information and, and, and looking back not only on how important this plant was, uh, you know, uh, to this country, but to all countries uh, throughout the world, you know, for 10,000 years. That really started uh, a, a really significant revolution in the understanding of cannabis, uh, its importance and its prominence in the development of uh, mankind. For me, uh, since my father's passing, I have just tried to keep that information uh, moving forward by you know republishing the book, making it available both digitally and in print to order, and and continue to educate uh, the fear out of cannabis and hemp's understanding. Uh, at the same time, you know, uh, I've also started uh, cannabis and hemp companies. And the Jack Howard Foundation, which continues my father's uh, teachings and, and understanding of hemp and its opportunities in the future. And, and that's pretty much, you know, what I concentrate on on a daily basis. Very cool. So there's obviously, I mean, there's a lot to go over there. It's definitely a long history, and I'm sure you've got a ton of stories. Um, but one of the things I find really interesting with, with what you're doing, Dan, is um, you know, and what your, what your father did as a pioneer in the space, um, because you guys have been in it for a long time. And then you have uh, Maureen, uh, who worked on the, you know, worked as the assistant district attorney, and then now on the regulatory side. So it's kind of like the, the OGs meet, you know, the new regulatory body. So um, I'd love to know about how you two got linked up, and then ultimately how you're, how you're working together now. Well, uh, I actually went out to Colorado a few months back, looking to expand the uh, presence of the original Jack Herrer brand, which is uh, our, our cannabis THC company and products that we were looking to get into the Colorado market. I was introduced uh, to Marine at that time through a good friend uh, of both of ours, uh, Tim Gordon. And, uh, you know, we just met and just we became, I think, almost uh, instantaneous friends, mm -hmm. um, both because you know, we, we understand uh, from different points of view how the narrative of cannabis and hemp has really, on some levels, catapulted its its use and understanding 
but at the same time realize that there's so much uh, stereotyping and so much inaccurate information that from a regulatory side, she was, you know, fighting this understanding of this plant that she was becoming to know. And, and that really solidified how her and I started talking is, is because at one point she was on the side of trying to figure out how to manage hemp and cannabis on the other side, I'm trying to legalize it and coming to the understanding of the truths about it really started to to strip away uh, all of the things that were the impediment to its future. And now we're collaborating on demystifying cannabis and hemp and, and really exposing its facts and its truths and, and also uh, really clarifying the differences in, in education and perception by finally starting to take the falsehoods and, and fiction of cannabis and hemp and, and replace it with facts and, and the future. Right, right. And ultimately, uh, you know, facts are left out in a lot of cases, especially when you look at some of the regula- regulations that have been pushed through. Um, you know, there's this kind of demonization of, of THC and, and everything that it, you know, could possibly do, especially when it comes to hemp, the, and, and Marine, we've talked about this, the 0.03%, you know, let's put an arbitrary number that's not based on science that just, that, I mean, I don't even know, did anybody, did you, does anybody here know how that, how that number came about? Like, where did that come from? Um, I mean, I know it's in the regulations, but like who decided that that was the number that it, the threshold that hemp could not go over as far as THC. Well, I, I think uh, I think your description is correct. It's an arbitrary number. It's 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 a number still based in fear. You know that that the government's like, okay, if we're going to allow hemp to exist, we have to let we have to assign a number that we can say, oh, if it's, if it's under this percentage of THC, then it's safe, you know, and that there's no fear. And, and, and again, it's, it's really playing on the same uh, falsehoods and fiction and, and demonization of cannabis. It's still based in prohibition. It's still based in lies. All of the things that govern both THC and hemp, even in, in legal states or in states that allow for the production of hemp or allow for the for the sale and distribution and and and, uh, and production of, of THC products, everything that governs either side of this is still based in the in the same fears and the same mm-hmm. falsehoods and the same demonization that created prohibition. So this is no different than. It's basically saying, oh, if, uh, you know, your hemp is less than 0.03, then there's nothing to fear because you can't become uh, elevated. You can't become high. And, and that is the, the thing that they're able to tell the public that it's safe because you can't, you know, you can't be changed in, in you know, your cerebral understanding. You know, it doesn't change your consciousness. Right. And, the psychoactive effect isn't the psychoactive effect isn't there. I mean, let's be real. If it's 0.03%, how much product do you actually have to have to get that psychoactive effect? If it's if you're having one gram of straight CBD and that one gram is 0.03%, what is that? 30 milligrams, I think, of THC, which is No, no, no. It's it's much, 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 much lower than that. It's is a it, percentage. Is it three milligrams? A, it's a percentage of a percent. Right. So then it'd be three milligrams. Per thousand, so so one gram, thousand thousand milligrams, 
would it be three milligrams that I don't know, I'm doing just mm -hmm. quick math here. But, but either way, my, my point was, my point was that to actually get a psychoactive effect, I mean, you're talking about having to have like 20 grams, 40 grams, even more than that of, of just straight CBD, isolate, distillate, broad spectrum, whatever you choose. I mean, that's not, even, is that even physically possible? That's just, that would be so nasty. <laughs> Technically, I don't think it's a cumulative thing with regards to if you smoke 10 joints of, of a hemp that was 0.03% THC, I don't believe that it's, it's cumulative in nature as far as it's, you know, stacking of elevation, like, oh, if you have right. 0.3 and then 0.3 and 0.3, it's still 0.3. And, and do we even have enough receptors in the body to even take in all of those other cannabinoids and then have that little tiny fraction of THC? <laughs> affect you. I have no idea, but it's just, it, it's an interesting number. Cause, um, when I, when you look at it, to me, it does obviously it, to me, it does way more harm than good. And in a lot of ways, um, first is it makes it extremely tough for farmers. Uh, you know, they're, they basically in some cases, you know, if they're, if they're testing hot, they now have to figure out ways to remediate if it, if it's even possible, or if it's over that the remediation threshold, they now have to just destroy their crop. You're talking, or if they even allow for remediation. Right. Right. And yeah, you're talking, you're talking all that upfront costs because as a, as a grower, you know, I'm sure that, you know, and all growers know you put in a lot of upfront costs, which for the most part, you, I mean, people aren't getting crop insurance necessarily. So that's not, that's not an easy thing to get. And if you do get it, you're paying a premium. Um, but so you either have to destroy your crop and then you're just left out in the cold with, with nothing to show for it. And now you're done the next year. Then you look at it from the patient perspective. And it's like, if someone's actually using this to, to fight an ailment and using it for some sort of medical reason, you now miss out on the possible benefits of the, um, the entourage effect with a full spectrum because you're, you've cut out and you demonize these other cannabinoids. So it's just, I don't know. I mean, I could go on for, for forever, but it's, to me, it seems like it does, that number does much more harm than good for the industry and for the end customers and patients. I was just going to jump in um, and just kind of go, going back a little bit to what Dan was talking about. Um, first of all, it was just really easy to love Dan immediately. He's just a great human being. And then, you know, when we started talking, we started realizing that, you know, his dad and his legacy, he had spent so many years um, advocating. And there's just not very many people that have that kind of stick to to do something like he did. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary in and of itself um, when everything is going against you and you just, you know, you're not being heard. So um, that's just admirable in and of itself. And uh, we, when we started talking, we started realizing that like, I'm kind of a little bit of the, what's still going on today on the legal and regulatory front. And just some of the things you were talking about, um, I've represented a lot of regulatory boards. I've seen physical therapy applicants, nursing applicants who might not get their license because they've had some sort of history of cannabis use. Um, sometimes oh it's God. been years and years and years ago. So that just started to really um, not make sense to me. And, and so I've seen, seen all that. And then when we're talking about the farmers having been the industrial hemp program manager, you know, just this idea that 0 0.3, and then as you were just sharing, 
you know, going over that, you might have to destroy your crop. Or if you have, like Dan said, if you have the option to remediate it, there's one thing that's kind of going around right now. I was listening to a meeting last week and they were talking about how different states are allowing it to go to different thresholds. Because in Colorado, when this all came out, the first thing I did as the industrial hemp program manager is I said, wait a second, there's a margin of error in a lab. So um, you're going to tell somebody to destroy their crop. And if you actually have to go to court on it, they may say, well, wait a second, your lab has a margin of error. So you had me destroy it because it the test result was 0.3, but your margin error allows for you know 0.5 more is a higher threshold. So my point being is, is that we decided in Colorado at that time to go to 0.399. So if anybody ever wanted to sue, we could cover our um, threshold. But I hear, I hear the USDA talking about a certain number, but what this all comes down to is each lab, each lab is going to have a different margin of error. Right. So that's something that nobody's talking about right now that really needs to be thought through. So anyway, um, that's another fact that's a that's an interesting one because i actually didn't even think about that i was leaving the labs the labs and that whole side of the conversation just out of my mind but that makes complete sense margin of error plus and correct me if i'm wrong because i haven't i haven't um been researching the lab side of things in in quite a while uh has there been a a, a national established protocol for no lab testing yet no and there's going to be all kinds of um you know procedural things that if you were an attorney in, in court, you'd be looking at very, you know, you'd be scrutinizing. So again, this is another fact over fear that there's all this fear about it, but they're not really looking at the facts behind it. So um, Dan has a, lots of examples. I have some, but um, it's been a great collaboration to be able to, to kind of fast forward into today and see the fears that we're still dealing with, even as we're trying to bring it to market. Right, right. It's yeah. I mean, there's a giant uphill battle to fight. I mean, luckily it was started by, by, uh, by people like 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 Dan's dad, Jack Hare. Um, but so actually, I'm curious. I'd like to kind of go back just a little bit. Um, Dan, when when did you get started? You know, or, I mean, obviously you've been in and around the industry your entire life. But when did you go kind of full head on into the industry, in, in cannabis or hemp? Uh, uh, well. In as far as an activist, uh, when I was young enough to register a voter and okay. uh, and collect a signature, so we're talking uh, 1980. Okay, um, so you've been in it. You've been in it. So my my next my question because I just wanted to to know like some sort of date when you were you know head head on into it because my question is I'd love to you know know from or understand a bit from you how education has progressed. Because obviously what we're talking about right now in 2021 is very different from when I entered the industry in like 2011. I mean, it was night and day different. Now I can only imagine what it was like in the early 2000s, because ultimately your dad was fighting an uphill battle the entire time and probably since 1970. In, since 1970. And, I, and I'm sure in, in mainstream, mainstream communities, um, ostracized and ultimately um, as an outsider, or at least, you know, you're fighting, you're fighting a, it's like David versus Goliath. It's a, it's a tough battle to fight. And luckily, you know, he stuck with it and he, I'm sure that there's been not only that tons of sacrifices, um, socially sacrifices between, um, you know, with your freedoms ultimately, cause I've, I've no doubt that your dad has been harassed. I don't, sorry, I don't know the entire history, but I'm, I can only he, imagine. He's been in jail many dozens of times. 
unfortunately. Yeah. Brutal. And it's brutal that we're still putting people in jail today for, yeah. for something that is legal and is, you know, with giant corporations trying to become the Walmarts of pot. Well, we have to be careful with the term legal because it, it, it is allowed more than it's legal. Sure. In states, it's allowed. Uh, the federal government says that it's still illegal. So technically, it's still illegal. Um, but my the ostrac the ostr <laughs> to be ostracized to be ostracized. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, from, hey, you were struggling from, with that just like I was struggling with mainstream with <laughs> from mainstream society was not the only place of discrimination that my father faced. In, in the 70s, uh, as my father became more vocal and more ever-present in being an activist and an educator, he was ostracized uh, from the cannabis movement in general. Uh, the, the folks from normal uh, discarded and, and, and dismissed my father uh, quite easily. Uh, they thought my father's views on cannabis and hemp uh, were so extreme that it was bad for cannabis. It was bad for marijuana smokers when normal was looking to uh, defend, um, you know, folks who were being uh, arrested and, and sentenced for uh, cannabis possession or sales or transportation, that my father's views that this was the plant that was the safest non-toxic substance known to mankind and that you know by embracing cannabis and hemp to its full utility uh we would not only be able to you know to save the world reverse the greenhouse effect you know change economic you know well-being for you know folks around the globe this was so extreme uh that even the folks that were defending cannabis users from prosecution my father was being removed from its conversation um, because his views were, were seen to be too radical. And, um, my, my father, in a sense, he doubled down. He, he was like, no, you, if, if you're not thinking about all things cannabis and all things hemp and how these things interact and how it's understanding is if you're not really embracing the truth of cannabis, then you are yourself buying into the same thing fact that 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 prohibition is is this thing that we have to deal with forever if your only idea is is to decriminalize it that you're you're on the wrong footing and if you're not looking to legalize cannabis and its use and its and its production and its distribution and its consumption if you're not looking to bring people out of prison based on you know decades old uh, prosecutions and, and, and incarcerations, if you're not looking to reverse all of the damage that the war on drugs and, and the demonization of cannabis uh, was doing, if you weren't looking to get every single person out of jail that has been incarcerated, then you're already on the wrong side of history. And they didn't want to hear that. And when he published the book, uh, The Emperor Wears No Clothes in 1985, when you talk about education, Suddenly, here was this book that depicts in crystal clear delineations of how the demonization of cannabis started, who was profiting from it, who benefited from it, and who and who were the subjects of persecution. That was just one aspect of what this book was, because and then it also brings in all of its history and all of its use and all of its importance throughout history. And this book in 1985 
uh, started to be read by, you know, a few thousand people in the San Fernando Valley where the book was originally written and published uh, to then being uh, sold around uh, the Grateful Dead tours and parking lots. And then it started to go into uh, some colleges and universities as as uh, historical texts. Uh, then it started to be um, really uh, passed around through the cannabis community at large because it was the first time that people were able to see real documentation of how this plant was used, how important it was to all civilizations, not just those who wanted to smoke cannabis, but those who wanted to use this plant to its full utility and, and really how disruptive the technology of cannabis could be to all new or, you know, all, all of these industries that have been producing products since the, the advent of, of uh, petroleum-based products and processes. And this book kind of really gave everybody an understanding of not only was this plant safe, but it was extraordinarily useful. And that really started to change the narrative. Um, but that narrative changed after Proposition 215 passed the Compassionate Care Act in 1996. And for the first time, we had some level of accessible cannabis without persecution in the state of California. Once that happened, people were able to go into a dispensary or, or into a, you know, a compassionate care facility and get their cannabis. As the years started to pass after that, People stopped fighting for changes in laws because they're like, oh, cannabis is legal. And, and people were just like, oh, how do we get legal cannabis into this state? And all they were looking for was a, was a place to, to call home, whether it was Colorado, or whether it was Washington, or whether it was Alaska, where you know new uh, medicinal access was available. And as people were getting their cannabis through these facilities, their fight for cannabis's overall freedom started to change. Their understanding of its history started to be forgotten in some sense because they didn't have to fight anymore. So why should they have to learn about hemp? Why should they have to learn about cannabis? And so there's been like this, this steady, almost decline in, in its true understanding and its, and, its, and its participation in our future, not just our past. And now we're coming back to the point where all of these great advancements in the access of cannabis and hemp and all of the products that are now starting to be used, whether it's clothing or new plastics or new opportunities, 3D printing, um, you know, new battery technology, new home building technologies, all of these things are now becoming uh, more important and more uh, sought after in new industry startups. And, and now people are actually going back to the education side of this and going back to the emperor wears no clothes and really looking at this information as it's almost like it's all new all over again. And 35 years after the book has been written, it is becoming as popular today as it was back in 1985, 1990, 1995. And, and, and we're still only talking mostly about people in the cannabis or hemp industries that are reading this book. And what we need to do is that the information that's in this book needs to get out to the wider audience, to those 
who, who hear about the developments and the access and, and new farms growing uh, in their states or new opportunities. And, and instead of them just accepting the fact that this is the way that the future is going to go and that governments are going to allow cannabis and hemp to be grown in their neighborhoods, that now they can actually have an understanding that this is more than just something that people can use recreationally or medically when they're driving their Mercedes Benz or their BMWs that have been made since the early 2000s or Mercedes Benz since 2009, many, many, many of their interior automobile parts are made from cannabis today. You know, their dashboards, their door panels, their, you know, all, you know, there's more than a hundred different parts in today's automobiles, mostly from Europe that are being made from the cannabis plant and cannabis technologies. And, and these are the things that these people need to know. They need to know that it's not just the thing that, 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 are, that their kids or that their grandparents are using medicinally or even recreationally, but it's actually the parts that are surrounding them, keeping them even safer, making their cars even better, making the products that we use and touch every single day uh, all that much more uh, biodegradable and, and, eco- and ecologically friendly. And th- that this greater understanding is going to continue to happen through the education of this book and through shows like yours. And, 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 and it's really an extraordinary time that we're starting to get back into a more educated consumer, a more educated public, um, but there's still a lot of work to do. The O Cannabis Conference and Expo returns to Toronto June 1st through the 3rd, and there are still good booth locations available. This exciting event is free for cannabis retailers and will feature Tommy Chung, receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the O Cannabis Industry Awards. For more information about exhibiting or to register to attend, go to ocannabis.com. That's O-C-A-N-N-A-B-I-Z.com. Right. I mean, all I got to say is there was a lot of information in that, and that was very well said. Um, now, I've got a few comments. Um, also, also some questions for you. Uh, one of the comments that... So I'm... I love these conversations because I learn new stuff every day. Uh, first off, I need to go back. I'm going to get that book today. I'm going to give it a read. I've been aware of the book for quite a long time. I was born in 86. So one year one year before the book came out, but I 100% am going to go back and read that book. I'm actually going to pick one up today because um, I'm relatively aware of the, the history of the prohibition and stuff, but I'm sure that I'm missing quite a bit having not read that book. Now, when you mentioned that the mainstream cannabis community was actually actually saw your dad as too radical in his beliefs and views, I, and you know how you pointed out that it's like, well, if you're not taking into account the entire history and the fact that it does this and this, like if you're not willing to accept cannabis as this type of, as what it truly is, then you're not far enough. You're not as radical as I should be, or as you should be, because I'm correct. Is what basically what he was saying and ultimately it's it's proven to be true especially with all the benefits that you can have from the plant um i thought of an analogy as you were talking about it i was like it's like um you know when we thought the world was the earth was flat it's as if all of a sudden we accepted hey the the earth revolves around the sun we accepted it maybe but but the earth is still flat it's like saying it's like saying it's like going part of the way it's not like hey the earth is a round sphere and it's revolving around the sun and you know, this is our solar system. It's like saying, you know what, I'll give you a little bit. There's other planets and there's a sun and we revolve around it, but the earth is still flat. It's like, 
you can't go halfway with it. You know, it just, it doesn't make sense. Um, the, the, the thing is, is with, with that, you know, when, and you're right, people did only go halfway because it suited their narrative. It suited what it, what, what was important to them. And at the time it was, you know, one, they had legal practices and they wanted to make sure that, you know, they were, you know, they had the ability to defend their, their clients, but it went so far beyond that because if that's all you're doing and your focus, your, 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 the, the narrow vision for what you had at the time was just uh, the defense of the accused. The, the problem is, is when you're, when you're defending that, you, if you take out all of the other history of cannabis and its, and, and its participation uh, within the space uh, and when I say the space of the space of commerce, the space of humanity, when you take out and, and you just narrowly focus on just this, that all of the other things that that cannabis has been responsible for throughout history is then forgotten and dismissed and becomes non-important. And if you dismiss all of that, then the future of cannabis is doomed because the future of cannabis is everything that would that that we see and touch in our daily lives you know whether whether it will ever get to that point in our lifetime at some point it will be recognized that this plant is the thing that creates everything from plastic to fiber to fuel to medicine to you know to uh you know the building blocks of society and you know if if you dismiss all of that um then you're already doing that you're already doing your client, this planet, humanity, a disservice. And, you know, if you're not embracing all of the cannabis, it's like when somebody says, you have to love all of me. Um, if you're only loving this much, you know, if you're only loving this much, then, then you've already lost because the rest of it is so important. You know, so you need to embrace this plant to its full utility in order to defend your client properly, because then you have a much broader picture in order to create the story and the narrative of why this these laws are so unjust, why the mm-hmm. persecution of cannabis uh, is 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 so insane that that you would put somebody in jail for a plant that has never killed anybody you know, as compared to an aspirin or to sugar or to pharmaceuticals or to anything else that we consume that kills tens and tens and tens and even hundreds of thousands of lives a year. And And then cannabis, zero. Right. Zero. And then you get into the fact that the war on drugs caused cannabis to prices and stuff to skyrocket. So the deaths are ultimately have been caused by things like the war on drugs and the fight over the plant, not the actual plant itself. Um, you mentioned in, in, so you mentioned prop 215, uh, back in 96 in California. And, um, you know, that was ultimately the fight for cannabis as being able to be used as a, as a medical remedy in California. And once that was done, it's as if people stopped pushing like, Hey, it's, it's legal now. Um, and I found it interesting because it's as if the prohibition, it's like, the prohibition, obviously, you know, with all the facts about how it was caused and stuff, it was definitely unjust. Um, but it's like the community as a whole is fighting to get back the basic freedoms of cannabis that should have never been taken away in the beginning. So it's like you're taking baby steps steps to fight back and, you know, decriminalize cannabis or make it make it tolerated, right? Because it's not federally legal. Um, yet that should have never been taken away in the future. And now it's like, we're just incrementally getting back these, these tiny little, um, 
you know, freedoms back in be, being able to use the plant, which is just a tragedy. Every day. Yeah. And, and so one of the things moving, um, you mentioned is the different uses. So I wanted to kind of dive into that because, you know, we're talking about for the most part, especially when you talk about the legalization, the medical aspects are always talked about, right? So, um, the possible medical benefits, you know, you can't make claims obviously because there's, there needs to be clinical trials, but, um, you know, treating brain injuries, treating, uh, pain, different ailments. Now you mentioned a bunch of things that still, I would say that, uh, I'd say that most people that aren't in the industry don't even realize these things. And I, you mentioned Mercedes Benz and all of the products that are being made from the cannabis plant. And I had no idea about that, about that. It was actually, you know, in those products now. So let's talk a bit about like all the different things that can be used. Um, or sorry, all the different other elements that can be used. I mean, hemp fibers, hemp concrete, hemp plastics, um, you know, it's ultimately, it's a bioaccumulator. So it's, a uh, cleaning our soil in, in, bioremediator. in, yeah, bio. Yeah. So it's, it's cleaning nasty pesticides and heavy metals and stuff that we've been dumping into our soil for years and years. You know, what, what else, what else is on the horizon? What am I missing? Uh, well, you have new battery technologies. Um, so high capacitor, high capacity batteries, uh, like those that are used in uh, our electric vehicles today. Um, there is new technology using cannabis uh, as, as, as the basis for this technology that, um, you know, that has the ability to uh, charge faster and discharge longer um, and, and being made from cannabis rather than, you know, uh, you know nickel metal hydride, you know, uh, technologies. I'm going to check, I'm going to check that out right when we, right when we get off here too, because uh, I'm not all that familiar with batteries, but you've got what the anode and the cathode, and I'm guessing hemp cellulose or something is used to replace one yeah, of those. You'll, and you'll, you'll have to talk and, to a scientist about that. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm going to, I'm going to research it. Cause I, I love that type of stuff. That that's up my wheelhouse. I just, I get interested. But if you think about everything that we touch uh, on, a, on a daily basis, if you talk about all things, paper and cardboard, if you talk about, you know, uh, using non-structural building materials with the exception of hempcrete. Um, you know, you have the ability to create uh, drywalls, insulation, uh, OSB uh, boards. You have the ability to create, um, you know, hemp flooring, uh, engineered hemp flooring. Uh, you have the ability to create clothing and plastics that are not only biodegradable, but programmably biodegradable. So you can, you can design the plastic to last for 30 days before it starts to biodegrade or 30 or 30 months or 30 years or 300 years. Um, and you have the ability to create a product that will then become earth again, rather than having to uh, worry about, you know, whether something, if it's, you know, put into uh, the ground will, you know, be there for a million years without you know, a choice. Uh, we have these new uh, technologies, uh, but these technologies in order to be used today uh, need to have the infrastructure to support the development of it. So we can grow in this country as Marine knows, 
you know, that there there can be tens and tens or hundreds of thousands or even millions of acres of hemp produced in this country to create enormous amounts of biomass and products for all different kinds of uh, applications. But if the infrastructure doesn't exist to process this products, produce the the these bio pro, or you know these bio products uh, and 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 the varieties that we can, you know whether it's paper, whether it's fiber, whether it's fuel, whether it's you know uh, you know clothing. If we don't have the infrastructure to do that, then it it, it it's still not applicable to our existence. And once that infrastructure exists. We have the ability to not only change and, and develop not a, a way to not just a way to, to survive in a future, but to thrive in it. And But that generally, like when you look at infrastructure here in the United States or anywhere in any country, you know, it's usually a, a mix between private and, and, and public support that creates infrastructure. So the government puts in money. Private industry puts in money. They create this infrastructure for new technologies to emerge. You know, so whether it's in the paper industry, whether it's in the automotive industry, whether it's in the railroad industry, whether it's creating interstate highways or interstate connectivity, you know, the government has a great role to play in the development and the use of these new technologies. And without that, the only place that it can come from is private. And if it's private, then it has to be, well, what's the ROI on it? Because nobody was going to put $100 million or a billion dollars into a hemp project when technically it's still illegal and, it's, and there's no application for it. And there's mm. this huge risk. Nobody puts that kind of money out there. And that's what we need today is this infrastructure in order to allow this plant to become what it should be. Right. Which is, yeah. Which is uh, why we need to get, you know, look at these facts, everything that Dan just laid out for us over fear. because two things. If we were, if uh, we could regulate end product, it wouldn't matter how much T it doesn't really matter how much THC is in there. If you're mm-hmm. going to be using it for a battery or a car part or a t-shirt, I mean, who cares how much THC is in those products? Mm-hmm. And so um, we really need to be looking at end product regulation and we need to be looking at remediation. Why are we asking farmers to destroy crop hemp because it exceeded a 0.3% TH threshold if it can be used for all these products where that's ir- completely irrelevant. So um, those are just a couple things that we've just, and I think, you know, hopefully we'll eventually get there, but if we could get over this fear, we might get there a lot sooner. Right, right. And ultimately we need to get there as soon as possible because obviously in the world we live in now, you know, there's, they're battling a lot of different things, um, farmland getting destroyed, destroying our environments. Um, you know, whether, whether some people believe it or not, you know, things like climate change, and it seems as if moving to a more hemp based world, just hemp products in general, because from my understanding, especially what, what Dan was laying out there is it can replace almost everything that we do as far as any type of material in your house, anything you work with. Um, and then also it's got all the medical benefits with all the cannabinoids and, and the potential there. So it's going to change a lot. There just needs to be that sort of combination of private versus versus public the to help make that push. Because it, just as you said, Dan, ROI, I mean, nobody's going to, if it costs an extra dollar per unit to produce hemp plastics to put your products into that biodegrade and are good for the earth, not going to do it if it takes a dollar off every unit, you know, from the bottom line. So 
you know, however, how does that change happen? That change happens through, through people, through advocacy, through purchasing decisions, you know, not only getting involved in the industry, getting involved in the political side of things, but also uh, making your decision every day with what you purchase. Absolutely. Speaking common sense about this, I mean, one of the biggest hurdles we have right now, and I, I work with a couple of different health care professional groups, is that we have um, healthcare professionals that want to recommend cannabis products to their patients, but they themselves are reluctant to use them because their regulatory boards um, could they could be disciplined by their regulatory boards. Now, how how insane is that that you want to be able to recommend something to your patient that you can't use yourself? that's a big hurdle that we have to get over. Right. Um, obviously we don't want our surgeons in, intoxicated with anything at the time of surgery, but that shouldn't mean that, you know, because that there's that remote possibility of that. And, you know, it's pretty remote overall that we should just not have healthcare professionals being able to utilize cannabis. Um, it just, it all of this just is not sort of nonsensical. And when you start breaking it down and looking at it from a common sense point of view, you really do see the fear of the fear of the fear. Right. We're, we're very good at doing nonsensical things. I mean, that's exactly what the prohibition. Well, I mean, made sense for, for some people, right? And, well, we're and, good at accepting nonsensical thinking. That's good. Yes, like that. Not okay. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's interesting too. When you mentioned uh, Marine, someone uh, doing, uh, you know, having surgery and being intoxicated, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, doctors use amphetamines all the time when they're, when they're having caffeine, you know, or absolutely. So <laughs> it's just I a mean, matter of cannabis when you have it, you know, it stays in your bloodstream and people can test for it. But heck, if you, if you had a bender the night before and got hammered and, you know, maybe it was out of your system, but you woke up still hung over and then you went and operated on somebody. I mean, that's not, it's obviously not a good idea, but that would be totally fine as far as you're not going to test badly or test, you know, positive for THC. It's just crazy. Right. And so, I mean, that's why I say, I'm not saying it doesn't happen because we have all kinds of situations, you know, every year where we have different kinds of healthcare practitioners who are, you know, under some sort of influence when they're treating patients. I mean, that's not, but the problem with cannabis is, is they look at it and they, even if they're using a, a hemp oil product, uh, they're not even testing properly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of not testing for CBD. They're testing for or the cannabinoids, they're testing for TH, you know, they just, they don't even have that down straight so that they're misinterpreting tests and thinking that some of these healthcare professionals are using marijuana when really they're just using a hemp oil product. Right. It's a bit of the kind of that old guard, you know, protecting, protecting the status quo as far as, you know, not allowing it in use or even with medical boards and stuff like that. I mean, I've told this um, a bunch of times, but the first doctor I asked, cause uh, ultimately I, I got in the industry because of my sports injuries. So been fed opioids my whole life to treat sports injuries and never, you know, never once was cannabis brought up in any of those conversations, not till I brought it up. And then when I brought it up, it was basically sure. If you want uh, chemically induced psychosis was the answer from the doctor. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and I just said, I just, as a piece going to a new doctor, like, Cause at that, at that point, you know, this was back, this is like 2011 or 12. And I was just coming off another surgery. Um, you know, I had, I've had a host of surgeries and I was looking for something different. And yeah, the, the fact that the doctor said that, and I had been doing some research at the time, but I wasn't, I wasn't really a user or, or, you know, smoker or sorry, I didn't really use cannabinoids to treat my medical 
issues prior to any of that. Um, and just some recreational use here and there, I had kind of bought in, I'd bought into the stereotype. I'd bought into, you know, if you smoke pot, you're going to be a couch potato loser and never do anything great in your life. Um, you know, stuff along those lines. And it wasn't until I saw all of those things happening when I was getting fed, like spoon fed opiates that I was like, this, this can't be right. And, um, started doing my own research. And then, like I said, when, when I asked the doctor that, and the doctor said that I was like, you know what, I, I don't, I don't know if I believe you on this. And I think I'm going to go, I think I'm gonna go learn for myself. So I did. And one of the best things I've ever done. I mean, I can't stand opiates and they're just spoon fed to us. But remember something like, something like, uh, having a pound of marijuana is going to get put, get put you in jail for 20, 30 years. If, if you have or life. Yeah. Or life. There's plenty of people who've gotten life for that. Right. There's people who've gotten life for a joint. Wow. And they're still, and many of those people are still in prison to this day, huh? Many are still in prison. Wow. Yet, yet you have what several publicly traded multi-billion dollar companies that are, that their sole purpose is to grow and make, you know, like I said earlier, the Walmarts of pot. Yeah. Fairly absurd, correct? It is, it is completely absurd. It's what we just said earlier. It's, it's, nonsensical and you can't accept nonsensical ideas. And once again, going back to what you and I earlier, Dan had talked about is that whole, you know, you can't, when it's something that's, that's correct, it's tough to go. You can't go halfway, you know? No. Yeah. So we gotta, we gotta find a way to go full way. So what we've talked about today mostly has been the negative. Let's talk, let's switch gears. I know we've got only a few minutes left here, but let's switch to the positive. You know, obviously we talked about all the things in the daily life, but what gets you, Dan, and you, Marine, excited for the next few years, the next five, 10 years, and so on? Well, I just, I think that the truth is coming out and you, the truth always comes to the surface. And no matter what you're talking about, the truth always comes to the surface. And I think that um, it's now coming to the surface and uh, it's not going to go away. And it's going to become more and more communicated and we're going to talk about it more and people are going to start to get it. And that's exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of that. Dan, what about you? Well, let's go back to the, the, the last conversation. And that is the absurdity of these billion dollar companies. But at the same time that there, there are aspects of it that are absurd because there are these companies that their sole purpose is to sell THC cannabis at scale, and they are worth extraordinary amounts of money. At the same time, that is also creating a new narrative that this is not something to fear. These businesses are operating in general without fear, other than federal tax and 280E and things like that. You know, uh, they're operating in most cases with without. Um, the proper banking, you know, because the banking hasn't come. But the positive things are, is that they're changing the narrative that people are are investing as that they would if it was GE or Westinghouse or, or, you know, Ford or investing into, you know, Amazon or, you know, Apple or whatever. Um, so it gives people an, uh, an understanding that there are changes. Now, with all of these companies that are creating wealth and products, we're also talking about creating jobs and incre- increasing taxation, building communities, you know, uh, you know, all of these 
things are, are created from cannabis that are lifting communities up, not tearing them down, not destroying them, not diminishing them, but actually showing how important and how vibrant and, and how necessary uh, these products that this plant has an ability to participate in, whether it's health and well-being products, whether it's medicinal products, whether it's building products, there are new companies and new technologies and new opportunities that aren't going to be changing anytime soon. There are countries around the world right now that are starting to break away from the from the single convention act and 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 step away from from the the, the stranglehold that the United States government put on the world with regards to cannabis and its understanding and its and its access. Uh, on a global scale, you know, China has never stopped, you know, growing cannabis. You know, Russia is is still growing hemp. Um, they're they're you know, you're when you're talking about Poland or you're talking about Holland or you're talking about South America now or now even in Thailand, uh, which used to follow all of the single convention act requirements, are are now starting to break away and and. Countries around the world are embracing this plant for its opportunities to build better industries within their country, to, to create a new, uh, you know, exportable product, a new, you know, uh, a, a new application and a new understanding within their own societies that bring back their own history, like places where cannabis has been a part of their own, you know, makeup as, as a society. And, and it's coming back and they're allowing it to, to create these new opportunities and new hopes for a better future. And these are the things that are amazing. And that, that when I wake up every morning and these things are still happening, I know that there's a long ways to go, but brother, it's going. Very, very well. So I think that's a great spot to go ahead and wrap this up. So thank you so much, Dan. Thank you so much, Maureen, for joining me today. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm excited for the future, especially what you all just laid out. Well, thank, thank you, you very much for having us. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.